You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you that you so loved the world, O God, that you have made your love known to us in the person of Jesus. We praise you that we have the Bible, that the whole word of God bears witness to him. So we pray now that in the reading and preaching of your word, you would illumine it now with the power of your spirit, that we would be those who experience the real presence of Jesus among us today. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have been in a sermon series for the last few weeks that we'll be in through Easter called Come and See. This is based on the gospel of John and the words that John uses throughout his gospel to invite us, to invite every person who reads this book or hears it to encounter the person of Jesus. And so what we've been saying is that we're we're wanting to be invitational people. First, meditate on what it means for us to be invited by God to the person of Jesus that we might experience and know more of his grace and power. But also, God is calling us to be invitational people, that we would extend to others the same invitation that we have received from the Lord. So today, uh, we're getting, last week we looked at that great story about Jesus in John 2, where he made the water into wine at the wedding feast. And today we're looking at the second half of John chapter 2, which is a very different story about Jesus, about him and what he does in the temple. So if you'll open your Bibles, or you can just listen if you want, John 2, verses, I'm going to read verses 12 through 22. So let's listen to God's word. Verse 12, after this, that is after the wedding feast, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jewish leaders then responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Kids, I want you to help me out because you've got better imaginations than the adults here, okay? Um, So I just want you to imagine a scene. It's your school, and it's a big day. It's a big assembly at your school. Uh, Maybe it's like an awards day or something, or there's a special speaker. And so you're in the auditorium, and the entire auditorium is filled with kids, right? A couple hundred kids all filled up at the auditorium. And then up on the stage, there's some important people like your principal, maybe the vice principal, you know, a teacher or two. They're all up there, and there's some tables up on the stage, and there's some important school papers and some trophies that they're going to give out. And everybody's excited. It's a big day, right? So you're sitting there, and all of a sudden the back doors of the auditorium burst open and in walks a kid, a kid that you know, a kid, you know, and maybe in your grade. And behind him, 
there's a few of his friends, and he just starts marching down the center aisle of the auditorium. And he marches up the stairs, and then he marches right up to the stage. And he walks over to the table where the principal is, and he takes the table, and he just flips it over. And all the papers and trophies and all the important school stuff just goes flying everywhere, and everyone is in shock. It's in silence. The whole room is just, can't believe what they're seeing happening. And the student turns around, and he looks at the big crowd of kids, and he says, this whole place is a disgrace. It's corrupt from top to bottom. And he turns around, and he points at the principal, and he says, you should be ashamed of yourself. And the principal stands up and grabs the boy by the arm. He says, who, who do you think you are? What, what right do you have to do this? And the boy says, you can, you can fail me. You can, you can kick me out, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to college, and I'm going to go to law school, and I'm going to become a lawyer, and I'm going to come back here, and I'm going to bring this place down. And then he just stomps out and leaves. What an amazing day at school, right? <laughs> That would be incredible. And I, 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 I tell that story because I just want you to get just a little bit of sense of what this was like for Jesus to do this. And in fact, no modern illustration can really do justice to what this must have, have truly felt like to be someone who witnessed Jesus do this. And it really is such a shocking scene. It kind of leaves you asking, what is going on here? I mean, last week, right, we were left, if you were here, we were left with this wonderfully warm picture of Jesus, that Jesus is at this wedding feast, and he's making this wonderful, beautiful wine, and he's bringing joy. And then the very next story, we see Jesus flipping tables and bursting out anger and yelling people. I heard one preacher say, it's like in the first story, he's the greatest party maker, and in the second story, he's the greatest party pooper. <laughs> yeah, that's a funny word, party pooper. Anyway, so what, what's going on here? How, how, how do we understand this? Well, look, we are being invited by the gospel writer John to come and see Jesus. And what we realize at the end of this chapter is that means coming and experiencing all of who Jesus is. Not just some parts, not just the parts that make you feel good, that we're not just invited into the Jesus who sets our tables, but we're also invited to experience the Jesus who flips them. That we're not just invited to encounter the Jesus who brings you joy, but sometimes we're invited to encounter the Jesus who brings judgment. And if you want to actually have a real relationship with the living person, Jesus Christ, it means receiving and coming to all of him. So there's a challenge in this text. There's a strong challenge, and we want to look at that challenge, but there's also an invitation, a beautiful invitation. But to get to the invitation, we've got to go through the challenge first. Okay, so we're going to look at those two things. We'll first look at the anger of Jesus, which is the challenge, and then we'll look at the promise of Jesus, which is the invitation. Okay, so first the anger of Jesus. Let's try to understand this scene a bit, okay? The temple was a very, the most important place for the Jewish people. It was literally in the center of the city of Jerusalem, but it was also in the symbolic center of everything in Israel. It was the heart of worship. It was, it was the center of politics, the center of national identity. It was truly the, the center of Jewish life. And it was Passover time, John tells us, and at Passover time, Jewish people who lived all over the ancient world at the time would all travel from great distances to come to Jerusalem to make the necessary sacrifices at the holy feasts. And that's what Passover was, probably one of the most important festivals of the year. 
So what that meant is that people would come from great distances, and when you came from a great distance and you had to make a sacrifice at the temple, you know, it was kind of inconvenient, you know? You didn't want to bring your cat, cat, your cow or your goat or your doves along with you. It's kind of hard to pack a goat, you know, in your suitcase and your donkey and kind of awkward. And, and so um, the merchants, what they would do is they would set up tables to sell animals to people who'd come from great distances, so it was very convenient for them. You go to Jerusalem, you buy your animal, you make your sacrifice, right? It also says that there were money changers there. That's because there were people from all over the ancient world, lots of foreign currencies. And so when they came to buy the animals, they had to exchange their currency into the local currency so they could buy the animal. Does that make sense? So at least at first glance, everything that they're doing here is above board. Like they're coming to the temple to make the necessary sacrifice. They needed to buy an animal. They needed to exchange money to buy it. All fine, right? So why is Jesus so mad? Well, at least two things that we can tell what Jesus was angry about. The first is, is that the temple leaders had taken a place that was reserved for the honor and the glory and the worship of God, and they had turned it into a marketplace. Jesus says that very plainly in verse 16. Jesus yells, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? Instead of selling the animals outside the temple or even just in the vestibule of the temple, they were literally selling the, te- the animals and setting up their merchant tables in the temple where the worship of God and the prayers and the sacrifice were meant to happen. And Jesus was angry about this, not because he's against money or commerce or profit, but because these things had become misplaced things. They had usurped and pushed aside and made secondary the worship and the praise of the Lord. And he was, Jesus is angry about that. So that's the first thing he's angry about. But the second thing is a bit more subtle. The, the merchants have set up their table in the courts of the Gentiles. So everyone was invited to come and worship Yahweh. Only the Jewish people could come into the most inner places, but the outer places was for non-Jews, for Gentiles, for foreigners, for anyone who wanted to come and worship Yahweh. They were allowed to come and worship, but the Jewish leaders had just been kind of like, well, who really wants those dirty, stinking Gentiles in here anyway? Right? We don't like those people. We don't need space for them. So let's just take the space that's dedicated to them and have the merchants set up their tables there instead. So they had essentially excluded all of these foreigners and Gentiles from the worship of God. And we know in Mark's, the Gospel of Mark's account, Jesus specifically yells, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. He's quoting Isaiah, right? Jesus is angry because he knows from the scriptures that God's vision for Israel is that it would be you know, a, a place for the nations, that, that it would be a place of multicultural worship, not a place of ethnocentric nationalism. And that's what Israel had was doing. That's the harm that they were inflicting on their neighbors here. And so we see there's, there's two things that Jesus is so angry about that he makes a whip and flips tables and shouts and yells. One, that they are disrespecting God in his worship, putting money and commerce in the place of God. That's called idolatry. And the second thing, that they are disrespecting their Gentile neighbors, excluding them from the worship of God, and that's called injustice. Idolatry, injustice. And I think this is so interesting because, you know, at some point, a young lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks him to summarize the entire law of God. I don't know if he's trying to trick him or something, but he says, well, you know, how would you just sum it up, Jesus? And Jesus says he sums it up with two things. Do you guys remember what, what they are? class, remember? Yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what else? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says these two things are the heart of what it means to be human, the heart of what it means to love God, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. And in both, in this moment, the religious leaders are violating 
both of them. They're refusing to love God. They're putting something, they're disrespecting, dishonoring God, putting something before God, and they are disrespecting not loving their neighbor, excluding the stranger that God wants to welcome in. Idolatry, injustice, and Jesus is really, really angry. So what does this tell us about Jesus and how he relates to us? What we see here, I think, is a really different picture of Jesus than we saw last week. And frankly, this may be a picture that you don't like of Jesus. Um, I just read this week that Thomas Jefferson in his version of the Bible, um, he just cut the story out because he didn't like this, this picture of Jesus. And maybe that's the way you feel, you know? I don't really like this Jesus, <laughs> so let's ignore it. Well, this is the Jesus of judgment. This is the Jesus of angry reform and justice. And last week, we looked at how the Old Testament prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he would bring wonderful, joyful wine well, guess what? The Old Testament also predicts that when the Messiah comes, he will bring purifying judgment. So Malachi chapter three says this, I will send my messenger, says the Lord, who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, a fire that purifies or a launderer's soap that uses acid to cleanse impurities, right? So Jesus is not just the Savior who brings wine. He's also the Lord who brings judgment. And this is not a popular message. This is not a message that you probably want to hear, but this is the whole Jesus. And I actually love that John puts both of these stories together. They're not together in other Gospels, but John puts them together. And so I think what, you, what we're learning is that, like I said in the beginning, if you want to have a relationship with the living Lord Jesus, it means encountering the fullness of who he is. It means that sometimes it will be like the wedding feast. He will bring great joy into your life. But sometimes it will be like the temple where he will bring judgment. That there are things that he wants to take away or throw out. Sometimes you invite him in as a friendly guest and other times he busts in like an uninvited disruptor. You know, sometimes Jesus will bring joy and laughter. Sometimes he will bring judgment. Sometimes he comforts. Sometimes he disturbs. Sometimes he fills your table with joy and wine, and other times he flips your table over, and everything falls to the floor. And so everything I said last week is absolutely true and remains true, that Jesus Christ comes into the places of greatest pain and disappointment in your life I know some of you are feeling that very deeply right now. He comes right into that place of sorrow and pain and disappointment, and he connects you with the true source of joy. That is still true. But it is also true that sometimes Jesus will confront you with things that have to change, places in your life where you are out of step with love of God and love of neighbor. I just wonder, if Jesus were to barge in through those doors right now, what would he say to us? You know, what would he say to Third Church? What might he flip a table over? I don't know, and I'm not going to presume to know the mind of the Lord Jesus. Um, I mean, just reading from this story, you know, maybe he would tell us in some ways that we are excluding people that he wants to be here. You know, maybe there's ways that we are unknowingly um, making some people feel uncomfortable who Jesus wants to be here. Actually, our session is really carefully looking at how our Church can become a place of greater hospitality to people of diverse races and diverse cultures. We, we don't want anyone 
to be left out who Jesus wants to bring in. Maybe Jesus would tell us something about money, right? Talking about money today at the town hall meeting, maybe Jesus would say something about that. You know, if you make $32,000 a year, and I think most adults in here do, if you make $32,000 a year, then you are in the top 1% of wealthiest people in the world. And what that means is, I think that if you are a Christian and you live in America, then it is almost impossible for you not to battle with money as a serious place of idolatry in your life. Have you thought about that? You know, I know for me, um, Tuesdays and, you know, second and fourth Fridays, great days for me, because that paycheck drops into my bank account. And I would never say that I trust my money more than I trust God, but on some days, I think that's pretty true. That I trust that my money will provide me the security and the significance and the protection for my children that I need, and I trust that way more than I trust the living God. And I also know that I am often so concerned for myself and my family that I ignore the plight of the orphan and the widow and the oppressed and the immigrant and the refugee, and I justify my lack of generosity as taking care of my own. And so I don't know, I just know that Jesus takes idolatry and injustice very, very seriously. And to receive Jesus means letting Jesus deal with places of idolatry and injustice in your own life. But listen, his anger is never like our anger. You know, our anger, my anger is reactive, it's capricious, it's ego-centered. Jesus' anger isn't like that. It's measured, right? He takes time to make a whip. You know, he doesn't just lash out. It's, uh, it's not about himself. He's always confronting wrong. And above all, his anger is always driven by love, like a parent moving towards her rebellious child because she wants that child. In her anger, wants that child to thrive. So Jesus moves towards us in love because he wants his people to flourish. I think one of the best illustrations of this, uh, the way that Jesus wants loving change in our lives, the, one of the best illustrations of this is from mere Christianity, where C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild it. And at first, because you can understand what he is doing, he is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. He's flipping tables. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. So yeah, sometimes Jesus comes like the modest wedding guest, but y'all, he is the owner of the whole thing. He's the owner of the house. And that means sometimes flipping tables, moving furniture. Sometimes it means bringing hard things into your life to point out what's wrong. Sometimes it means things will hurt, but the goal is always love, that you would be a palace, the place where God dwells. So that's the challenge of Jesus. That's his anger. And if you are exploring Jesus, let me just suggest that I know this picture of Jesus is jarring, but it's actually wonderful because if Jesus really is God in the flesh, you would expect him to be a person that would challenge you from now and then. If, if, if you had a God that always did everything you wanted and never contradicted you and never crossed you and never challenged you in any way, with all due respect, you would not be worshiping God. You'd be worshiping a projection of yourself. Marx would be right. But Jesus is not a projection of yourself. Jesus is a living king. And he comes with a challenge. Okay, that's the first thing, the anger of Jesus. 
But there's also a second part of the story, and that is his promise. That's his invitation. So let's look at that. Verse 18, the Jewish leaders are shocked, and they demand of Jesus, who do you think you are? What miraculous sign can you show us to prove that you have the authority to do this? And Jesus, in such a Jesus way, offers this very cryptic response in verse 19, destroy this temple, this is his promise, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And of course, they're like, what? Flabbergasted. This, this temple, King Herod, took 46 years to build this temple, and you say you're going to raise this up in less than a week? They can't believe it. But of course, John the narrator tells us that Jesus isn't talking about the stone temple. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his own body. So what's going on here is the leaders are saying, how can you just come in here and act like you own the temple? And Jesus is like, own it? I am it. I am the temple. I am the one to whom the temple pointed. I am the fulfillment of the temple system. I am the fulfillment of all the priests. I am the fulfillment of the sacrifice. Right? A quick history of the temple. In the beginning, we read in the Garden of Eden, there was no temple because God dwelled face to face with his people, unmediated relationship between us and the living triune God. That's the way human life is supposed to be, us living in the presence of God. But when human beings sinned, we were kicked out of the presence of God, no longer able to meet God face to face. And so in the Old Testament, God remedies that with something called the tabernacle, which was like a traveling temple. And then later they build the permanent temple and the temple was the place where God could still in a qualified way, still meet with his people. And there was the Holy of Holies where the priest, only the high priest could come once a year and you had to bring sacrifice to take away the sin of the people because how else could a sinful people be in the presence of a holy God? But everybody knew this was only provisional. What everybody really wanted was to get back to Eden, right? Where we could once again dwell with God and be face to face with God and have an unmediated relationship with God. And so the big question throughout the Old Testament is, How's that going to happen? Can there ever be enough blood? Can there ever be enough sacrifices? Can there ever be enough priests to bring humanity back in union with God again? And Jesus stands here in the temple and he says, I am the one who's fulfilling the purpose of the temple. I am the one in whom God and humanity meet. I am the priest the one who brings you into the presence of God. I am the ultimate sacrifice given for the sins of the people. Verse 17 says, the disciples remembered this verse as they saw Jesus tear it up. Zeal for your house will, literally it says, zeal for your house will tear me to pieces. Jesus is so committed to restore God and humanity, the whole purpose of the temple. God is so committed, so passionate. Jesus is so zealous that God's, and his people would no longer be apart, but would be together again, that he allows himself to be torn to pieces, to be ripped and nailed and executed, put into the grave, all so that God and his people would be united again. This is the invitation. This is the invitation that Jesus is offering. And I think it's beautiful that, yes, we do see the anger of God here, all of God's anger is present in Jesus, his anger against idolatry, his anger against injustice. But if you know the full story of the gospel, in the end, all of that anger is received by Jesus himself. As Karl Barth famously said, the judge is judged in our place. And that's the invitation. That in the end, love swallows up anger. 
And the invitation of God is what stands, is that Jesus lived and died and rose to bring, I really want y'all to hear this, to you know, imagine that holy of holies, that place where the high priest trembled to go because he knew that the very hot, powerful, glory presence of God dwelled there, that what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection has made it possible for that glory presence of God to drop down right into the center of your life. That's what he has died and risen to give you. So that whatever you do, no matter where you go, no matter what suffering you're in, no matter what you're going through, no matter what pain you're enduring, no matter what darkness you're in, you have the very glory presence of God right in the center of your life. I am the true temple, he says. That's what's on offer to you. So we've seen the challenge of Jesus. That's his anger. That Jesus is a, is a wild king that we cannot control. But we've also seen the amazing promise of Jesus, that his death and resurrection is ultimately to bring the very temple of God right in the center of our lives. So I just want to close with a couple of quick applications. The first is about Christian community. Um, you know, the Christian life, we often say around here at Third, is not just a me and Jesus life, it's a we and Jesus life. It's a life meant to live together. And all the more so because of this story, that Jesus died and rose and when he did that, he did away for the need for a physical temple. And now he says the temple of God is first and foremost Jesus Christ himself, where God's presence dwells. But it's also now in his people. In fact, Jesus himself says it in Matthew 18. He says, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Peter says in his first Peter letter, he says, you are the living stones built into the very dwelling place of God. And so what that means is that Jesus has kind of turned the world upside down, so we don't need, I mean, church buildings are wonderful, but no longer necessary. And I just think it's so funny that they turned a place of worship into a mall, and we have turned a mall into a place of worship. And that's what Jesus has made possible, right? That's what Jesus has made possible, that now every time where his people are, Jesus says, there I am in the midst, there you dwell in the very presence of God. This is the temple of God, y'all the community of Jesus. And so the challenge here is you can't grow, if you're looking to grow as a Christian, you just can't grow as a follower of Jesus without his people because his people is now where the presence of God dwells. So how, I'm just gonna keep challenging you on this. How are you gonna take one step deeper into Christian community this season? Not because you need more friends, that's great, but also because you wanna know more of the presence of God. So if you're worshiping online right now, bless you, I know some of you need to worship online, but some of you are just doing it because you love the Church of the Holy Bed. Um, and if that's you, I just wanna challenge you to come in person, show up here. Some of you show up once a month. If you do, I wanna challenge you to show up twice a month, double it. Uh, some of you come regularly, but you are anonymous and you haven't really taken the risk to be vulnerable and for, to, for people to know you and for you to know others. And if that's you, I would challenge you to get involved in one of our more than 20 parish groups or, or befriend someone deeply and take the risk to share vulnerably, right? Because of Jesus, the people are now the dwelling place of God and we encounter him together. So that's the first challenge is community. And the second is prayer. There's a warning here, I think, to busy religious people like myself. And I do wanna say that if you're a skeptic today and you're here um, and you find, and you are very angry at um, religious hypocritical people who seem to ignore the needs of justice in the world, hey, you're in good company with Jesus Christ, <laughs> right? Maybe you're mad at God's people and not mad at Jesus. Just wanna invite you to consider that. Now that being said, 
to all of you others who are busy religious people like myself, I think this is a challenge to us that it is very easy for us to get so busy with the motions of religion and to show up every week and do our duties that we end up entirely missing the point of everything. Right? It's possible to be so busy with your religious activities that you turn your life, in a sense, into a marketplace and you miss the most important thing, which is love of God and love of neighbor. Jesus Christ did not die and rise for you so that you can just run programs and be busy and fill your life with all kinds of busy activities. You can do that without Jesus. What you cannot do without Jesus is to live every day of your life dwelling in the very presence of God. And so here's a test. What's your, what's your life with God like these days? What's your prayer life like? Prayer is not just what you say to God. Prayer is a, is a posture of living, that you are living in communion, dwelling in the presence of God. Are you seeking God's face? Are you dwelling every day with him? Are you receiving the privilege that Jesus has offered you to dwell with the very glory presence of God? Do you know his love for you? Do you live and walk in his love? If you say, well, I've been very busy. I just don't make time for that. Well, because I have so many Bible studies or something. You're missing the whole point, friend. Jesus wants to throw some stuff out. He's going to flip some tables. He said, make yourself less busy. Live a more unhurried life. Slow things down. Make time to commune with me. Jesus did all of this that we can live and dwell in the presence of God. So I want to give you a new practice. Last week, I gave you a morning practice. How many of you have done it, done it this week? I'm going to wake up in the morning and say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's a choice toward joy, to orient your heart towards the reality of Jesus' joyful kingdom. But I want to give you a midday practice this week because what happens to me is I get up and I pray and I say those words and I'm a joyful follower of Jesus and then by lunch, I'm an atheist, right? Like I have totally forgotten about Jesus and God and I've just gotten consumed with all these other things and I'm a pastor, right? So, so, so the, the, the ancient traditions of of spirituality in the church know that what's some things like what's called keeping the hour sometimes where you pause in different times throughout the day to tune the heart back to the reality of God's presence. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. Um, midday sometime this week, whether you set your alarm or you set a little thing on your phone or call a friend or whatever, that you stop and you remember that you at every time and every moment, whether you are aware of it or not, whether you know it or not, you are dwelling in the presence of God and that is a gift to you because of Jesus Christ. And so you could, you could use the words from Psalm 27. This is just my suggestion, that you pause and you say, I dwell with the Lord all the days of my life. I dwell with the Lord all the days of my life. You dwell with the Lord all the days of your life. This is God's gift to you through Jesus Christ. Friends, let's receive that gift from Jesus as we offer our hearts to him now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to receive and encounter all of you, all of that you are, not just the parts that we like, not just the joyful Jesus, but also the flipping table Jesus. And we surrender to you. Um, and we want, if there are things in your life that you want to put your finger on, Jesus, if there's things in our church that you want to put your finger on and that you're telling us to change something or throw something out or get rid of something, would you show us that? We want to be open to that. Would you reveal that to us, each of us? Thank you that Jesus has died and risen so that we can dwell in the presence of God, that we can always be in the temple of God forever. Help us this week to walk 
and dwell with him now and forever. In Christ's name, amen.